Welcome. You're listening to Mystic Moon Cafe Radio. Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm Wendy. I've got Miss June with me and and Mr. Jacob as well. So uh, hi, everyone. Good evening. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And the chatter's chatting. Um, Anyway, well, how is everybody this evening? June, have a good day at work. I I did. I I really did have a pretty good day today. It was a little uh it was a little challenging of course as it usually is, but uh it was it was you know pretty nice. I uh but uh you know I I kind of woke up about one o'clock in the morning and all of a sudden I just started having all these amazing plans that I wanted to do and I couldn't turn my head off, so you know, my brain off basically. Mm-hmm. I couldn't take my head off either. But uh, so I got up and I just started uh, making out lists of things that I needed to get done. And I thought, well, after I make these lists, surely I'll go back to sleep. No, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And I just got more hyper and excited about things that I was going to do. And it was like, oh, my God. And then about 630 when I, you know, well, 530, I usually get up anyway. So 630 is when I started to crash and get really tired. So I was like, oh, this is great. (laughs) So lots of coffee, everything else later, and I'm doing pretty good, (laughs) I have to say. But uh, so, Jacob, how about you, too? Well, fine and dandy. It was, um, you know, your usual day job, corporate bland kind of thing. Don't hate boss if you're listening. Uh, (laughs) and uh you know i got no complaints i've been very excited about the episode tonight just because i'm a major fanboy (laughs) of our guest we'll try to calm you down sometime we'll have to say jacob rein it in i know i know i know i might giggle a lot so i've got the you know that clipping thing on the microphone so i don't like blast everyone's ears out when i go squeal like oh my god yeah (laughs) if you start squealing we'll be like um Let's take a break. (laughs) Yeah, let me find that intro music here again. (laughs) Right, yep. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Well, Wendy, how about you? You uh, you didn't say how you were. Uh, I'm I'm all right. Um, We had a pretty unpleasant little storm roll through earlier this morning and uh, took out a couple of uh, limbs and things. Oh, oh. the cable's been a little wonky. It's it's reset itself a few different times today, so I I think maybe one of the limbs clipped the line, oh, but I think we'll be okay. Well, Jacob Jacob's running everything, so it shouldn't it won't affect us. So all of a sudden we hear a kaplump. Yeah, we'll know that. Uh, <laughs> Wendy was happened, disconnected. Wendy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, you know, if if you hear a kaboom and we go down, that's just Rainier popping its top. So that's yeah. Nothing to worry about. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're pretty close to the volcano, you know. I mean, <laughs> I, I think we are actually. Are Jacob? Aren't we kind of in the safe zone? Isn't it like over fifty miles? No, actually, we're thirty miles, aren't we? Uh, we're a little more than that. So oh, Tacoma gets that. wiped out. Yeah, and Tacoma. Then gone. yeah, and Fire then Tukwila, <laughs> which is a suburb, southern suburb of Seattle, that will become a little lava pool. But I'm on the other side of that hill, so it'll just be warm and you know a little caustic. But otherwise, I you know we should be fine until so the tsunami just, hits. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. And yeah. I'm on Mercer Island, so I should be cut off from everything when when I ninety goes and, and yeah, but uh, yeah, but it's good for the zombie apocalypse. That's true. I'm on top of a hill, so yeah, you know, blow the bridge and you know, 
I'm good. Yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm safe. <laughs> As the natural disasters keep rolling in, yeah. we've got our plans firmly in place. Yes, the uh, non-existent global warming. Uh, oh yeah, we Wait, could I talk. Think we can go to that. jail for saying yeah, that. Yeah. Oh yeah. We could talk about the end time scenario in New Orleans going on right now. I mean, floods, tornadoes, and a hurricane. Yeah, wow. all at once, pretty much. Yeah. That's that's a little terrifying. I have to tell you. Yeah, I guess our little light showers for today. I'm like, oh, so nice. This is wonderful. <laughs> and our temperatures are amazing. You know, it's like my friend in Phoenix says 110, 115 degrees. And it's like, oh, I'm glad I'm right here. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I am I am sitting here right now with a blanket wrapped around me because I'm <laughs> so, I'm so cold <laughs> and no air conditioning. So it's mm. like it's pretty amazing. Ooh. <laughs> Pretty amazing, I have to say. That's why I love Seattle. Mm. Ditto. But the upstairs people keep it cool enough upstairs, and there's something. The raccoons did some damage to a whole bunch of uh, uh, ductwork in the attic. What? So all all of the cold. Yeah, we had we had critters in the in the systems, <laughs> oh, and uh, we we did catch them and and release them over on the other side of the river, and oh. but. Uh, there was something gone on, but the the air conditioning blows so hard down here that it's about eh, sixty to sixty two degrees most oh, of the time. Wow. It's colder now in the middle of summer than it was all winter long. Oh, <laughs> great. <laughs> so yeah, I got my Wendy socks gets, and my fuzzy yeah. slippers and sweater. Wendy gets frostbite in yep. the uh, <laughs> in the basement. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's ah well, better than being hot. Mm. Yeah, exactly. True. I'm just I just cannot stand the heat. Nope. Can't stand um, the heat or the cold, so <laughs> <laughs> really, really perpetual but, spring yes, or fall. Yes, exactly. That's why I love Seattle, you know. Yep. Hardly ever gets below thirty degrees and hardly well, you know, mo- a lot of times it does not get above uh, I would say eighty, wouldn't mm. you say? I mean most of the time. Yeah, for I mean we've, we've got the couple of days, weeks yeah. where it's yeah, it gets into the nineties, but usually it's upper seventies, so can't exactly. Love I can't, I'm not complaining at all, even if it. Yeah, we haven't had hardly any warm days at all. Um, it's been kind of a chilly summer so far. Yeah, we're still in so, May. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, <laughs> we just talk about this lovely weather all day long. <laughs> but we got business to get to. Yes, we do. We do. This is exciting. Jacob, uh, would you like to introduce our guest? I would love to. I'm a huge fan. Okay. okay. Are you ready, folks? I'm going to kick into radio announcer voice for this one, all right? You go right <laughs> ahead, <Jacob. laughs> So, author, investigator, and artist, Linda Godfrey is the author of 18 books on strange creatures, phenomena, and people. She's a frequent guest on national TV and radio shows, including Monster Quest, Seasons 1 and 4, Fox News Red Eye, Lost Tapes, Monsters and Mysteries, Sean Hannity's America, Inside Edition, Coast to Coast AM, Wisconsin Public Radio, and The Jenny McCarthy Show. She recently appeared on Travel Channel's In Search of Monsters, as well as Legend Hunter for The Beast of Bray Road and Small Town Monsters, also focusing on The Beast of Bray Road. She lives in the Kettle Moraine area of southeastern Wisconsin with her husband and her dog, Grendel. Linda has a new book coming out on July 16th, I Know What I Saw, which will be 
the topic of conversation this evening. And with that, Linda S. Godfrey, I'm a huge fanboy. Would you please come on? Hi, welcome, Linda. Hello, so nice to talk with you all. And fanboys are great. Fangirls are good. Fan dogs. <laughs> Any fans are, are wonderful to me, and I appreciate anyone who pays even a penny for one of my books. It's it's still a miracle to me. That They're that all fabulous. <laughs> Everyone buy six yeah. copies each. Give them Christmas gifts. I'm serious. Pass them out at work and things. <laughs> oh, I, I I forgot to mention that Linda has a Facebook group, Unknown Creature Spot. Um, for all these sorts of creature encrypted uh, sightings. So if you're on Facebook, go find that group and sign up as well. Mm, yeah, and there, there has to be somebody there to kind of sign you in. It's a closed group, but um, we just, you know, don't want scammers coming in. So we mm. just take a little bit of precaution. But they can also go to, I have a, a blog, lindagodfrey.com. And um, there's also my own Facebook pages. I have Linda Godfrey and Linda, the one that's supposed to be my author pages is Linda S. as in Susan Godfrey. Okay. So I there's will, a wide range. I will <laughs> drop those in the chat for the fans. Thank, Thank you, Jacob. No problem. So, and by the way, I'm so glad to hear that all of you are in the safe zone from the next impending volcano. I would not want to see <laughs> Thank you very much. Or lava. Well, yeah. I, will, I was, was going to say, go ahead, Linda. I was just going to say that um, I'm hoping that you'll be the shepherds of the Bigfoot and the, the man wolves that also flee to the safe zones when that happens. Yes, it's like, Thank come this much. way, come this way. But I will say, once Tacoma gets inundated with the, um, I forgot what they call those protoplasmic mud flows. Um, but the bat squatch might be flying out. There you go. Yep, that was the original bat squatch terminology uh, birthplace, I guess you would <laughs> call it. I still think that is one of the best cryptid names anywhere that anybody <laughs> bat squatch. Yes. yes, but later on the show, when we get into the discussion of it deals with the Chilean, the chapter with the Chilean cave. Um, creatures, when we get to that one, you've got some short squatch. I'm going to be all over that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's in the, the <laughs> small, small beings chapter. Yes. Well, um, Linda, uh, Wendy here. Um, I was wondering how you feel about being the catalyst for the legend of the Beast of Bray Road. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things that has just sort of come along without um, real effort. I mean, when it happened, I was just writing a story that I thought would be some local interest and be gone in a couple of weeks. Never did I dream that it would go on any length of time after that. And then 10 years later, I'm sitting there at the newspaper office thinking, I'm still getting letters and phone calls. That was um, probably about the year 2000, just before everybody really had their own um, Facebook pages. I'm not even sure Facebook was a thing then quite yet. But... Um, it seemed to me very odd at the time, and I thought, well, I know what I'll do, because I was actually just wondering how long it was going to keep up and people were going to be contacting me. And I did even tr I even tried to pawn off all my notes and things on the local library, and they just came back and gave it back to me and said, well, we can't handle all these calls. So there I was, kind of stuck with it again, and I thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll write a book. 
I'd already wanted to write a book, and I had written another book about a different topic already as well. So I thought, I'll, I'll put it in a book where it's all together. People can go to this book. They can read the whole thing. They can see what happened. They can you know, learn what the witnesses said and what other sorts of things and theories had sprung up by that time. It was you know, updated. So I thought that would be the ending. And really, that book was just truly the beginning. Um, it was, it just went, the whole thing seemed to go not viral because there was no really going viral in those days. Mm -hmm. But it was a big um, hoo-ha hoo about it. I don't, I don't know what kind of word that is. It's a very Wisconsin yeah. word, yes. It, it is, exactly. <laughs> I understand exactly. you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there hadn't been such a, such a big fuss about it until um, that, that book came out. And then the book just started it again. And every time... Um, you know, th that would happen. Then more people would write, and I'd think, well, I have to let these things be known, and this, um, this cements that theory, and that disproves that, and so I'd write another book, and I just sort of kind of drifted along on this, you know, pelt of were werewolf pile, um, I, I was going to say uh, pelts, but it didn't come out quite right. On the, the pile of werewolf pelts does not sound very appetizing either. It was like there was some sort of... Uh, I was thinking of something feathery, light, and buoyant that was bearing me along, and that was what came to mind. But, um, and anyway, I don't think that they're werewolves that you could get a pelt from anyway. I, I believe there's something something a little bit different. And they're not real werewolves. That's my other big thought, is that they're not like what the people of France experienced back in medieval times when hundreds of people were being killed by these things, and they had actual animals that were also captured and killed. And so they had material proof they had terrible damages and they had um creatures that really weren't like what contemporary reports were saying at all mm -hmm. so you know that and and then because i was kind of getting out there for these strange subjects i also um was blessed and fortunate enough to um, be asked to co-ed co-write the weird wisconsin book for barnes and noble and then um to write the the weird michigan book for barnes and noble mm -hmm. and that's, and then sequels to those. That kind of just set me off in a different direction. So, wow. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of people. Um, I, I there was there was some debate about the the Beast of Bray Road that a lot of people thought it was actually Bigfoot, and then this was just kind of another uh, category, I guess you'd say, for Bigfoot. And um, I guess it was it's. I didn't realize it was such a. Uh, um, I guess you'd say a, a big thing about it there, there so many people were, have been arguing about it that some people think it was the wolf man some people think it's bigfoot and <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of controversy yeah and especially when it first started coming out it, it really was quite um you know turn people people in the, the bigfoot camp were, were not willing to accept it very well and they were calling it the snouted bigfoot Oh, and that was that just it didn't make any sense to me because one was clearly a primate, the other right. one was clearly a, a canine, and they're built really differently. You know, they just are. Um, primates, the Bigfoot, humans, we walk flat-footed, and where canines walk on their toe pads, mm -hmm. and people mm -hmm. say, well, their legs were went were uh, turned backwards when they were describing the canines, and really what they were saying was that um, the part. The, the hawker, what we would call the heel in the human um, leg and foot, um, 
we we have our heel touching the ground and something that walks on its toe pads has it, its heel up above the ground. And so you're seeing what we would think of as the heel and believing that that should be the knee. The knee should be pointing forward the other direction and it isn't. We're just seeing the heel and not realizing it. So wow. most most people have not thought through this whole thing of, of mm -hmm. anatomy. So when they see that jutting heel bone or hock pointing backwards to them, then I know they're just describing what they saw, you know, without trying to go look things up or, mm -hmm. or anything else. They're just telling me plain, plain and truthfully. And also, um, the, the Bigfoots don't have tails. Dogman's not always seen with one, but, but quite a bit. Most people will report that there's kind of a brushy tail and, and furry all over. And they have the long snouts and the pointy ears on top of their heads. Right. On Bigfoot, you very seldom see an ear unless the, the hair is kind of... Like, I had one really great great um, description of one where there was one crossing a river, kind of swimming across a river to um, this man who was on the other side of it. And he said it, the hair parted because it was wet and he could see there was a flat human-like but pointed ear on the side of the head. Normally it's just covered by the fur. And it isn't very often that people get to see that, but this was an exceptionally good sighting. Um, it's, in the it's in the American Monsters book, excuse me. And so um, that was uh, an, an interesting uh, part of the description that they seem to be looking, overlooking. And then fin my final analysis was, well, let's say that you went to Africa and that you were looking for um, chimpanzees. And then you saw a, hy a hyena, which you didn't know existed. And you said, well, that must be a snouted chimpanzee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very I mean, much. I was gonna say, in that regard, though, they probably would think a baboon was a snouted chimpanzee. I well. have had those proposed to me separately, except baboons really don't. I mean, they'll sit up on their haunches, you know, quite straight, but they really are even more of a quadruped, you know, and they're not mm -hmm. even primates. They're monkeys, basically, because mm -hmm. they they have tails and, and they're just in kind of a different family. But their, their heads do look somewhat canine until you really look at them and examine them closely next to a, a dog's or, or a wolf's. Um, you know, there, there are quite a bit of differences. But, uh, and their behavior is really different. And we have, to my knowledge, zero baboon population in the United States. Yeah. A, uh, maybe a few zoos. I'm not sure. If they have to be a very well-equipped zoo to have a baboon because they're very clever and big and strong. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they have those in Kansas City or not. Baboons? The Zoo. Yeah. In the zoo? Hmm. In I the Great either. Ape House or however yeah. that was called. I think Milwaukee does. Here. And, and I know there are zoos that have them, but uh, but just a population that you might run into if you're running around in you know at night anywhere in the United States, you're just probably not going to see a baboon. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully not. Kangaroos, <laughs> maybe. They do get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with with baboons though, they they like very large. I don't know if you call them pods or colonies. Actually, it's called an army of baboons, and they're very Ooh. migratory. So they probably wouldn't do well in the enclosures of a zoo. It'd probably drive them insane because they're very migratory, like wolves. Right. It would be nuts. It would drive them nuts. I agree. Um, the mandrill is a little mm -hmm. bit different. You know. Maybe, but it's so bizarrely colored that you'd notice that right away. Um, so there, there are possibilities, but not, 
not the snouted um, Bigfoot, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Well, that too, I mean, you know, it's like finding prints. It would definitely be large canine prints, you know, if, if there was something like that. Unless Bigfoot is taking up ballet and walking on his, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> Sorry, mean, I, won't, I won't say I, that. I would say the other thing is it was described as eating meat, and a lot of primates, I mean, while mm-hmm. omnivores, they tend to eat vegetation much more. Which, in that part of Wisconsin, there's a lot of vegetation. There is. You know, and they've been, Bigfoots have been seen gathering um, roots of cattail plants and then stacking them kind of in a neat pile and then taking the pile home to their wherever, cave or, or whatever it is they, that they live in. And they also are known to pick berries, uh, like much like bears do. Um, but they seem very fond of both roadkill and especially of deer. You know, mm. people have frequently seen them chasing deer, chasing rabbits, um, taking away a large piece of roadkill. Mm. And um, that that actually, I sometimes think that perhaps that was what inspired the first bipedal canines. Mm. Um, perhaps, I, I, I really think that the Bigfoot was mostly on the West Coast out by you and maybe up into Canada, maybe came down into New York State. We don't have a lot of um, places where Bigfoot was put into the um, Native American totems out here. But you see those, you know, I'm sure you're well aware of, mm-hmm. of all the West Coast um, evidence of that. Mm-hmm. But that they, when they encounter, when the, the uh, wolves or what dog, dog wolves or whatever were here at the time, saw that they may have tried to imitate it or um, maybe they felt like they were defending themselves better if they stood up against it. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I call that model the indigenous dog man. And I think I had okay. that right. But yeah, because it just seemed like there there might be, especially in the prairie state areas and around the Great Lakes, places like that where it would be very advantageous for animals with larger paws that were able to, and maybe it's just some had mutated them and found they had this big advantage and, you know, of course, re- reproduced more of themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, and then were able to stand up and, and carry things in their upper forearms, which gave them different muscles, mm-hmm. and um, the, and not have to go on four feet across a muddy, watery place that they didn't want to. They could go on their hind legs. Mm-hmm. So there may have been many rewards for that. Yeah, so the, the one thing that I always thought was curious when we're talking about either with the Canids or with Bigfoot, especially in the um, upper Midwest, the Great Lakes region, is there's so much fish available in shallow rivers and streams that you would think, you know, looking at, say, a black bear or other bear, they would just go fishing for, like, muskie and pike and simply because it was so abundant. Mm-hmm. But you never really hear about fishing from Bigfoot or many other creatures other than like a raccoon or a bear. Yeah, um, it, that is interesting. I have, I, I have personal knowledge of a couple of um, close friends who have seen Bigfoot sort of like grabbing for fish from the shoals of a Michigan Lake, for one. Mm-hmm. Where it was a, a very good fishing place, and in fact, um, the person uh, took me out there in a rowboat to the exact spot where he saw 
um, Bigfoot leaning over and, you know, acting like it was trying to get things out of the water. Mm-hmm. You could just see where it would, it would be a perfect place yeah. um, for them to get nutrition. And, and he, that's what he seemed to be doing. And then there was also, um, I visited, there's a woman in Maine who had sort of a habituation with Bigfoot for quite a bit of her life. And she said they would, this was a, a lake, um, as I said, in Maine that was uh, quite deep in the center and had shallows and so there were clams all around it. And she said when they, when they were in season, um, this Bigfoot and a couple of, several of them would come and sit down on the edge of the water and just kind of plant themselves there in the mud and just crack open using their, their knuckles and their bare hands, um, clam after clam after clam and just eat what was in it and wow. discard the shell. And there'd oh, be wow. <laughs> shell middens left over from um, him. From them just, can you imagine how many of those things a Bigfoot could put away? Yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> yeah, well, in, one, in I, one city. So. I, oh, I mean, wow. so the one thing that would concern me about Bigfoot and, and other creatures with the invasive species, like let's just take, um, so I grew up on Lake Superior. Mm-hmm. We have zebra mussels. Zebra mussels, mm-hmm. not good for food. They choke off a lot of the native clams that would be available. And now we have the Asian carp, which if you don't know about the Asian carp, it will jump on your boat and attack you and eat everything <gasps> in sight. You're kidding. Seriously. That's, that's they, they, a nightmare. Yeah. They're, huge, they're yeah. huge. And they just hurtle through the air like circus performers and land in people's boats. Yeah. I've seen videos and they're not, they're not hoaxes. <laughs> I mean, that's what they do. Yeah, wow. it, it, I'm just thinking you have an animal, even though Bigfoot is probably a pretty smart critter, right? But, and with some of the other creatures, but they're looking at these potential food sources. They're not like the things they're used to eating. It makes me think we would have a starvation effect on these cryptids and creatures. And, I mean, to me, that's kind of alarming that we allow so much of these invasive species. Yeah, it's mm. it's very sad because they kill off the good things, you know. And yeah, there's a lot being learned about forests and eco management right now. Um, I know with with the known animals that can sort of um, just trans transit over into the same thing that we're talking about. Um, for instance, um, take the mountain lions, which are heading. It's well known that they're heading eastward. Mm-hmm. And they had been almost exterminated in the continental U.S., except a few were driven down into um, the areas of, of Arizona, um, southern Texas, that sort of kind of drier desert place. And they have to, every every male cougar needs about 30 square miles. And they have to go out in search of 30 square miles and a female in order to achieve their life goal, mm-hmm. which is making more baby cougars. And mm-hmm. it... It sort of drives, and so they've been coming eastward, and the thing is, the, the big argument is, should they be allowed to be shot or um, protected or whatever? And the thing is, it's so counterintuitive. You, you would think that if they went and shot the larger animals, which is what normally happens because the hunters want the trophy size, right? So mm-hmm. they, they choose the older, larger cougars, but unfortunately, they're also choosing the wiser ones, the mm, ones wow. know how to, <clears throat> they know how to hunt and provide for themselves and their families, and they know how to stay away from humans. They know what guns are 
And so what happens then is the efficient deer killers, because they're, they're really good at, at taking out the, the sick and the deformed and the, you know, um, the weak ones. And when that happens, the deer herds or the deer, yeah, the deer herds proliferate and get bigger and right. start eating all the plants they're not supposed to eat. And then the ecosystem gets poorer because all these good plants are gone and then the deer have to look for other things. And um, it's just kind of, you would think, well, if they, the more big ones they shoot, the, you know, the less there will be, but it's, it's the opposite way. And so then um, things just go downhill quickly from that. Well, you know, that's that's like when they reintroduced the wolves in, it was at Yellowstone, mm -hmm. <clears throat> where they reintroduced the wolves in there, and, and now the wolves are, it's, it's, you know, a nice big pack now. And it's amazing, they did a study of the whole thing, of, of how many things that changed with the ecosystem, and... Um, it it was incredible. It's like the the water was more abundant. I mean, it was just so many little changes, and uh, because the deer weren't, I mean, the deer were being more controlled, so there was more vegetation. It was just this incredible effect. Yeah, very uh, similar. Very similar. It's like wow, you know, <laughs> it's like people need to really look at that. They do, and yet, and yet, then you see the other side because um, in Wisconsin we have wolves which are not considered um well they're considered an they're considered an endangered species so legally you can't hunt them you can't shoot them even if they're taking some of your land uh livestock it has to be to protect you you know or, or a human or you can't shoot them and so um we opened the newspaper yesterday and um in kind of central wisconsin there was a wolf pack that killed 30 sheep Oh, no. Oh, wait, I take, take that back. I think they killed 12 sheep, and then there was one further up north that killed um, 30 or 40 sheep. Oh, no. But yeah. then the state has to pay reparations. <clears throat> right. Everybody is, um, you know, talking about it on both sides, but we never quite come to any consensus. Yeah, that's true. And I think um, just I, in northern Wisconsin, so I grew up with wolves as a threat. Um, and also black bears, but it to me yeah. it seems like the wolves are learning to adapt and deal with humans because for the longest time wolves were very skittish around people and you didn't really get much crossover. Not so much now, so it makes me think that there might be hybridization. Let's just look at the northeastern brown coyote in upstate New York, which is dog, coyote, and wolf, and it has all the best characteristics of the different species. So it makes me think, you know, wolves just aren't as afraid anymore. Yeah. No, I don't think Which that is they a little are. scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in Hillsboro, um, it's, it's remarkable because, well, you know what that place looks like. It looks like somewhere in Colorado, but with more vegetation with the rocky outcliffs mm -hmm. and all the great, uh, the green forest, the deep valleys. It's beautiful. It, mm -hmm. uh, rivers going through it. People have no idea that there are parts of Wisconsin that look like this. And so um, they've been seeing mountain lions over the past, um, oh, a few in the 1930s and then really kind of starting in earnest around the, the 50s and the 60s. And at least 150 reports have been made just to one man who's been keeping track. He's a former uh, newspaper writer and editor. 
um, born and raised in Hillsborough, and people started calling him and telling him, and he was um, very good about recording these things and getting it all down. And here's the thing, 150 cougar-like creatures in several decades within an 18-mile radius of Hillsboro, Wisconsin, is mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. And even more so is the fact that over half of them were black fur, and which is not supposed to exist. You know, there's not supposed to be um, a black or melanistic mountain lion. So it's oh. possible that they're that they're hybrids with something else, mm -hmm. you know. But even so, it's quite unusual. And the the other thing is that people will make reports of creatures that these animals are coming right up to their backyards, to their back doors. The latest one we had was in this March, and it a very large black furred, I'm going to say panther for lack of a better word, they're not really mm -hmm. panthers either, mm -hmm. but a black panther-like creature, a large one, walked through this guy's yard in the city limits of Hillsborough and just kept going, and his next-door neighbor had had two sightings of them uh, over the past several years. So it's a real thing, and they're being snubbed and ignored by the DNR and by other right. wildlife officials. Yes. I was just I was just watching um, that today about the, all these witnesses that are coming forward and saying, you know, we've got a black panther, we've got some black panthers walking around in the, in uh, you know the woods behind our houses, and and people are like, oh, you're full of crap, and these these people are really credible, <laughs> and uh, you know, saying, you'll be sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so for our, our listeners that aren't familiar with it, um, the geography is unique to the area. Back during the last glaciation or ice age, there was a section of Wisconsin and the upper Midwest. There's parts of Minnesota, Iowa, and a little bit in Illinois where the glaciers missed. And right. so these bluffs, this bluff area you see is essentially where the glacial meltwaters flowed through. is a giant lake and the tops of the sandstone cliffs and bluffs, these were the islands in the middle of the glacial lake, Lake Wisconsin, it was called. So that explains the geography. It's kind of like a mini Grand Canyon. It's gorgeous. Lacrosse oh, wow. is gorgeous. Yeah, it, it's astounding. I remember, and see, both my grandmothers are from, well, one lived in Hillsborough and the other one lived in Wilton, okay. maybe seven, eight miles away from there. And so I had a lot of childhood vacations either um, there or up in Price County, up in northern Wisconsin, close to you know, where you grew up. So um, it's just, there's no place like it. And um, I, I know one book I read called it like um, Candyland for Cougars, mm. <laughs> just, just from, from the way that it is. But um, I, don't, I don't think I mentioned my son and I and my husband formed a mini production company and we're making a film, a, a documentary film on um, – these cougars around the Hillsboro area. And there's even a mountain, a small mountain, that's known as Wildcat Mountain. And so this is called, we call it the Re Return to Wildcat Mountain. If you go to, um, you can look it up on Facebook or you can go to YouTube and just put in Return to Wildcat Mountain and there's a two and a half minute trailer on it. But again, you'll see we have so many great witnesses. There's even one woman who lives there now, but um, some years ago, she was part of the Florida Panther program in uh, in which they were, the, the cougars in Florida were dying out. They just didn't have good conditions. They were being shot. 
they were in great danger of disappearing. And so they brought in all these big He-Man cougars from Texas. Um, I think one article described them as, um, um, oh, what, Rocky in one of his, his movies. I can't remember. Sylvester Stallone in one of his okay. movies. I can't remember which one. And so these were um, then bred with the other ones, and they pretty much helped bring back that plant, that panther um, troop that they that they originally had. And it's just amazing how um, these animals have this desire to come back to where it's, it's as if they knew that their ancestors once roamed all over the Western Hemisphere, which is true. So did the wolves, you know, and they all seem to have this instinctual urge to go back home wherever it was that their ancestors roamed, which is everywhere. And just no matter what we humans do, they find a way around it. If there isn't enough good plant food, they'll go into our garbage cans and take, take what they can. Mm -hmm. um, bears too. But um, yeah, it's, it's something that is getting to be more and more noticeable. And we're going to have to come to terms with it. Yeah, so the, the big thing, and believe me, I'm pro-cougar, don't get me wrong, but it, what always, and having lived there as a kid, we, we knew about, you know, the cougars. Um, mm -hmm. But the thing that I never really got is Wisconsin winters are really, really harsh and really, really long. You would think there would be some kind of migration, but where would they go? Because there's nowhere else around the area until probably you get down to the Ozarks that is anything like the Driftless area. So how do they right. persist unless they're holing up in the, the sandstone caves and, you know, raiding some farms? Well, some of them are, you know, no doubt. But most of the ones that they've been able to track with collars and then they just go back and look at the DNA um, have come from the region of the Black Hills in oh, the Dakotas. okay. And they come down through uh, Minnesota and cross, they, some of them somehow cross the Wisconsin River. Others go farther south and go around it, um, and then up into Wisconsin. So there are different routes. But um, if you look at just a, a regular map, you see all the roads, you see all the marks and, markings of the city, and it looks to you like there's no place a cougar could go. But um, if you look at a top of, uh, uh, well, let's just say um, a map that a drone made, an overhead map, where you see all the tree canopies and the forests and everything and the, you know, the rivers and the houses become um, really subordinate to that. And you see that there is lots of cover and that um, these animals, the ones that they've been able to track, follow sort of the same path. There was one back in, um, let's see, it would have been in the, around 2008, I believe. It was called the Milton Cougar. I actually grew up in Milton, which is another small town near where, where I live now, not that far from the Kettle Moraine. And this cougar, they identified it was leaving droppings along the, the way, and enough people were finding footprints and turning in those droppings that they sort of tracked it. That is the one that got all the way down, um, went west of Milwaukee, moved like through the Kettle Moraine area, um, right almost to where we were, my husband and I were living at the time, and then went, followed the uh, lake line of Lake Michigan until it got to Chicago. And then 
rather than branching out, it was finding enough greenery, parks and golf courses and that kind of thing that it kept going and finally surfaced in a suburb um, of our outlying town of uh, Chicago where it, it emerged in an alley and had to be shot because it was so bewildered, didn't know how, mm -hmm. to, how to get out of there and people were afraid of it. There's another one called the Connecticut Cougar that took several years and went all the way to Connecticut, made almost nice. the same journey. Wow. So they're finding, they're finding their escape routes and um, it, it's not as hard as one might think. Mm -mm. So uh, the other thing, since we were on the subject of uh, critters you don't expect showing up in Chicagoland, I don't know if you saw the news recently, but they found alligators in a lake near Chicago. Humboldt Park? Yeah. You read it? Um, not the whole thing, but yeah, I've been talking with someone about it. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting uh, simply because I, so after I grew up in Wisconsin, I had moved to Chicago to go to school and I stayed there for a long time. But, you know, Chicago for the longest time had winters, you know, like the upper Midwest you expect, but mm -hmm, right. it, it things have changed and it doesn't get that bad anymore <laughs> in the winter. <laughs> so I wouldn't be surprised with all that, you know, the upper Midwest, it's loaded with fresh water. Gators mm -hmm. like fresh water. And I, Linda, you had written about Wisconsin gators before. I think it was Monsters of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. um, do you see a trend with large reptiles making it to the upper <laughs> Midwest? Well, um, they seem to be reported more often. I'll say that. I know there was one, there was one reported in Janesville uh, quite a few years ago, and you know there there are several different ways. I mean, people sometimes get them for pets or bring them back from mm -hmm. Florida for a joke. I mean, you can, gators, you can have um, ten gators crawling around on your sidewalk at any given moment. <laughs> for some people I know, if you're in the right places. Um, and they do sometimes find sewers. My husband happens to be a civil engineer who specializes in um, water treatment and, and waste control. And um, they, they can get into sewers and come out in, in strange places as well as large snakes. And um, it's just this will to find survivable places. Wow. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's very... Um, kind of mind-blowing when you think what those things go through. They're just kind of blindly foraging wherever they see the next good pile of something to eat. And uh, and, uh, it may, and I really think that that may be changing our um, climates, our ecosystems, just as well as anything else, because they also affect where farmers, if, if your sheep are getting killed continually, you're going to move them to a different place, you're going to add some construction, you're going to change the landscape in some way. To be in your favor, and you multiply that over many farms, and the effects could be quite great. Mm -hmm. That's true. Well, you know, that's that's the thing about adapting too. It's like so a lot of these reptiles. You know, if they have babies when it's warm, and the babies are born, and all of a sudden they start to adapt with the colder weather, and and then they have, you know, you never know. It's like just adapting and and changing with with the climate they're in. Right, right, exactly. So, so the uh, alligators in the New York sewers—I remember that was a really big thing back then. You know, maybe a little, <laughs> maybe oh, it was a little true. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Like Chicago now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they get any more. Yeah. Yeah. That, that. And there's a 
a was sword. It just a alien. Well, they can be an anomaly too. Like you know, somebody right. bought mm -hmm. one at a pet store, flushed exactly. it, or whatever. And exactly, and it's like I lived, I lived, and it thrived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ooh, All of a sudden, yeah, the chihuahuas have gone missing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so that happens. I mean, when when yep. there are either large numbers of uh, of uh, any sort of pre I can't remember if we were talking off air earlier, but my neighbor that had a coyote come up in their backyard, right next to my backyard, and she said they'd been seeing them and hearing weird noises in the green space. They thought maybe there were several other things, but people, small dogs at that time were going missing mm. and can't. Sure. Yeah, so that's what happens. In fact, this I'll tell you a story that is a little bit uh, humor on the humorous side that happened uh, maybe a decade or two ago in southern Illinois, kind of in the center of the Wisconsin-Illinois border. And there were these two women who had a cat that they they lived in a house uh, right near that, that border town. And they had let it out. Usually they let it out to go prowl for an hour or two every night before they went to bed. And all of a sudden they heard their cat just yowling. And they ran to the patio door, the kitchen patio door, flipped on the light and standing right there with the, have you ever seen those guilty dog looks? You know, when the dog goes and did something bad. There was, well. like six, there was a six foot tall dog-like creature standing there in their patio light with their cat in its mouth. Oh no. oh no! And you know, I guarantee you, these two ladies were not going to make up a story like this. You know, they were shocked, and they they were screaming, and they had the light on, and all in all, it was enough to shock him that he opened his mouth and dropped the cat. The cat just rocketed away. Oh wow! And um, he turned around and left. Hmm. Now, is it possible that he was just returning a a wayward? A uh, fur kid back to these ladies. <laughs> like here, here we go. Oh, by the way, <laughs> I, I I tend to doubt it. Um, yeah, you never know, but um, it is true that in areas where these things are seen, um, there usually is small animal depredation. And in fact, I I heard from um, I had a report from another man who lived in a mobile home park not too far from Bray Road itself, and he said that. Nobody could understand it, but for the longest time, cats were just, almost all the cats were gone missing out of that mobile home park. Oh, and wow. Then they became aware, somebody clued them in of what, you know, what uh, mammals were nearby them and um, happened to be the Vista Bray Road, if you want to call it that, or, or an example of something very similar. Um. I can tell I'm you sorry. something just yet. Yeah, it stopped. Yeah, my, <laughs> my, head, my head went, see ya. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to observe, and, and it's very complex. Sorry. It's, it's very complex because you've got this interplay of animals that always were here. They've been pushed around to other parts of the country. They're trying to come back. And then you've also got occasionally um, some things that don't sound like earthly natural animals. Um, for instance, the ones that uh, are usually seen running alongside the road, I'm talking about the, the unknown upright canines, mm. um, your, your quote-unquote normal unknown upright canines are doing something that isn't supernatural. Running on the hind legs is something any mammal can accomplish. 
if it has impaired paw, front paws or if it's been trained or motivated in some way to do it. They, they can. Mm -hmm. but what people notice about these animals is this uncanny sense that it's just as interested in them in a personal way as they are in it. And they'll have sort of a, an epic stare down with it. And they'll feel during this that they'll get the idea. It's, it's like it puts an idea in their head, not words in English, but they'll get the idea that it's trying to tell them that it's better than them or that it could jump on their car if it wanted to. And occasionally that has happened. Or um, it could get them if they go and tell people about it. <laughs> wow! And yeah. they real—that's when people get scared when they feel like they're, they're getting threatened. They're, yeah, they're getting a message, and and I'm not even so sure that it's the threat itself. Other than that, they don't Fear know. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown, precisely. They don't know exactly what this is. They don't know if it could do these things. They don't understand why it's doing these things because, you know, say you're a hunter. This actually has happened to my husband where he's out hunting in the woods, waiting for the deer, the perfect deer to come by. And he was in his tree stand once, and a bear came, walked about like 20 feet away from him, never looked up, never did anything. But it certainly didn't stop and stare him in the eyes and think, I am bear, I could get you from the tree. You, you know, mm -hmm. I, There was nothing like that. And you, it, you would consider it a very unusual story if, some, if you hunted or somebody you knew hunted and came back and said, yeah, I've saw this bear and I felt like he was trying to tell me he climbed the tree you know you'd go do 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 yeah that's true <laughs> was that the, it's like the uh the Wernerville dog woman story mm -hmm. yeah uh, yeah you know I was just thinking that with the with the um you know superior intelligence yeah so <laughs> in that regard Linda I mean that was one of my favorite stories that you had in I know what you saw or I Know What I Saw, sorry, uh, which comes out on July 16th, people. You can pre-order on Amazon. That's the plug. I already did. Okay. I already pre-ordered. Okay. <laughs> Ditto. Um, so what was interesting with that one is, that, like, the whole chapter is focused on around dog women, which you don't really hear about the female counterparts of Canids. Never do. And yeah. as soon as, as soon as, you know, Jacob had brought that up, you know, about not hearing about, you know, female canids, it's just like, you know, it's so true. You always hear about men changing and, or, you know, even in the movies, all the movies, it's always men right. and, and, you know, male werewolves. Mm -hmm. So and I hate to mention it, but also female investigators, very, very few of them. Oh, good point. Very good point. Yeah. Very, very, mm -hmm. very good point. Yeah. Um, but my question around that one is, because you do mul mention multiple dog women through chapter two, which is called A Meat Hook and a Dog Woman. But in the my case of... Chapter, my favorite chapter title ever. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. amazing. <laughs> um, but my question with that one is this specific dog woman seemed to be aggressive. And because you had interviewed the three teenagers and they talked about the story from 72, but this had persisted throughout that area of Pennsylvania. So I really have two questions is how does a story like this, which, you know, you got a lot of people who get threatened by this, this, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I would want to call it a cryptid. I guess that would be appropriate. But how does a story like this not reach prominence? And also the other thing is, in general, why would female canids not be so aggressive? Yeah, um, 
it it's hard to, it's hard to answer both of those questions because you have to try and sort out fact. The fact was that these three guys were riding in a car and looked up on this rock-faced wall, vertical wall, um, that was kind of uh, casing in one side of the road. This was on a hill. And on the top of the hill was this old, beautiful resort that had been, become a sanatorium and then became finally abandoned. And they used to use um, kind of a an opening or a hole built into this rock wall for their meat storage. They would put a big hunk of ice because it was built before they had refrigerators, and that's how people kept their meat cold. And so, of course, you had to have meat hooks inside the chamber to hold that meat up off the floor. And then they, there used to be a door on it, but the door is long gone. So these guys had heard about something vague about a dog lady. It was kind of on their minds, and they went out. They'd been out a couple of times before. And this time, they pulled up um, in front of where that meat hook chamber was and looked up, and lo and behold, there was an upright canine. Now, they don't describe how they knew that it was a dog woman. They just presumed that because there was the um, legend about the dog woman and it was placed where they were, that it must be this dog woman. So they're just kind of going on faith there at that point. And then it, it behaves in an aggressive way. Um, maybe, you know, you can always surmise that it had its territory. Maybe it had some pups if it was the dog woman. Um, you don't really know for sure. But um, if, you, if you read the whole thing, you can see that I did sort of map out, because I, I, when I'm puzzled by something, I like to open a map. I still prefer the big old atlases for my first look. And yeah. just kind of pin everything is. You know, and then connections often start to become apparent. And I noticed that um, we had the mobile dog lady mm -hmm. um, yep, yep. right at that same time frame and that they weren't all that far away in distance. Yeah. And that this one did look like um, a female and a humanoid dog, upright dog, because she had, they said she had a pretty a somewhat human-like pretty face, mm -hmm. and that she had um, hair and just impressed everybody strongly as a female. So wow. my thought, my, my conjecture is that perhaps this traveled word of mouth via high school students from one to the other over these you know several years and gaps of the sightings. And because it was always mentioning a dog lady when these strange canines came up, that's just what people assumed that it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you you had posted the theory that it could be a female Bigfoot simply because of the face and um, because the face it wasn't muzzled. That's true. It it did seem more humanoid, and so that is another possibility. Um, it's hard to say. You would have had to see the see it from the back and see if there was a tail or something, um, because Bigfoot wouldn't have a tail. There'd be there would be a few other markers, but. Mm. Um, the descriptions were, especially for the mobile one, um, kind of, you, how can I put this? I don't want to say sketchy because people seemed to be frightened out of their minds by it when they mm. saw it. They didn't offer the same amount of detail. Um, but you can't always be sure that just, be, just because something resembles another thing that you're actually seeing both are the same thing. Correct. Yeah. 
so um, it's a little hard to figure out. And it, my whole purpose in writing this book, if you notice, there's a subtitle, kind of a uh, never-ending subtitle. <laughs> it was Modern Day Encounters with Monsters of New Urban Legend and Ancient Lore. Yes. And my, my original assignment was to write a book that took these mo this modern legendary, which um, there's there's not a lot of real different modern legendary. I'm mostly talking about things like Men in Black, mm -hmm. um, the um, Stick Man, Stick People, yeah. Slender Man, that sort of thing. And I they love really, the Hat Man. The yeah. Hat Man is another one. They, they really are not like the traditional part animal, part human sorts of monsters. Mm -hmm. uh, killer clowns is another one that's mm -hmm. there's there's no animalistic part. It's just a you know rotten human or scary at the very least human. So um, I thought the well if if I took each one of these and, and kind of visualized it as uh, a yarn ball where all the pieces of yarn have been tied together and then rolled up into a ball, um, I should be able to just take that layout out straight and see just how everything went and untangle it with a now, a middle, and a long ago. And the thing was, when I started laying these things out straight and seeing where they were and where they went and what really happened, the tangles just got worse. You know, there would be places where um, there, there was a wrong color put with another color or they were snipped in two and I had to pull it out and start over. That's how it felt. You know, just in my own analogy, um, because things didn't always level out as you expected. Mm -hmm. But most of these creatures, um, other than the ones of the electronic age, going back to, you know, millennia, back to Sumeria, to the very earliest civilizations, had pretty much the same monster creatures. They had the giant flapping birds, um, big enough to carry away a man. Oh, yeah. Right, Thunderbirds. Yeah, the in yeah we had the Thunderbirds, the Native Americans, the rock with the Persian Iranians. Mm -hmm. um, you had uh, back in in Sumeria, you had um, the uh, Adventures of Enkidu and oh, what was the other guy's name? And one of them was like a big hairy, half human, half animal type of creature, and that was way back in in Sumeria, and it reminds. Anybody who looks at it and reads about it for a long time reminds them of Bigfoot. It was a little more civilized than Bigfoot, but um, you go in and you go forward into some of the Egyptian ones. You've got Anubis, um, the jackal-headed god of death, all slick black fur and the ear, pointy ears on top of the head, the long muzzle. Mm -hmm. Right. And people do report things. I, I have a number of reports where people say, it was Blackford, and it reminded me of that Egyptian Anubis. Um, sometimes there, if if people are reporting one in their bedroom, I call them the the bedroom invaders. Other people call them that too. And some something is inside your bedroom at night that didn't go through the door to get it. You know, in that case, you're dealing with something phantom and and mm. different. Mm. Those have red eyes instead of the usual green yellow eye shine. And so. Um, you start realizing then there are permutations of these things. And that's where it gets kind of confusing. Are they seeing a natural animal? Are they seeing some sort of spirit energy imitating or mimicking the natural animal that's doing that thing? Are they inspiring the natural animal? 
to walk on hind legs like a human? How is the connection done? What, you know, what relates to what? Yeah. And that's tough. And I, I don't claim that I've solved all these. Just I've put them forward, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there will be people trying to figure them out. Yeah, I, I was going to mm -hmm. say one of the chapters I found really interesting was chapter three, which is those dear, dear people. <laughs> and you talk about the mule deer woman as well as, as dear people. And for one thing, I didn't know mule deer anything could be lethal. But uh, you talk about how the eyes glow differently than other animals. They're white, and sometimes they've, they're white with a green hue around them. Uh, so, but my question with those, and and thank you for bringing forward dear people, because I know I never really thought about them. <laughs> right, I haven't either. I hadn't. <laughs> um, but you had interviewed a lot of Native Americans, specifically, I think it was the Lakota Sioux, um, especially with the mule deer woman. And is there something about with Native Americans being able to perceive these creatures more accurately than other ethnicities? Well, I think it certainly may be that partly that they're more aware, they're looking for these things, they have some, um, let me pun badly, skinwalker in the game, because mm -hmm. they live there, and if they follow, uh, if they don't follow the known rules for dealing with these creatures, um, they believe their families could suffer repercussions, so mm -hmm. they're, they're very careful to learn about these, to observe advice given by elders, and which is basically that if you see them, you don't mess around with them. You know, you try to make yourself um, inconspicuous to them. Right. You don't want to draw their attention. And so when you're driving along and you see this woman on the side of the road, um, one, one of the guys wanted to stop and offer her a ride, and the other guy said, if she's out here walking by herself at 2 a.m., she doesn't need our help, <laughs> was, there, was the, the reply. And so um, it does make you wonder, and it's very, very much, very like the um, UK idea of the water horse, which oh, yeah. is something that it, it looks like a beautiful horse, all mm -hmm. saddled and ready to go, um, usually seen standing by a pond, and somebody comes along. Uh, sometimes it'll be a beautiful woman, and um, either way, they'll be enticed into the pond, where then they're drowned and eaten or what or change themselves which whichever but it's again when you you take these legends that people are still using and telling and then um take them or even the native american culture stories which are very very much alive in tribal life today they're not something that's gone away um and forgotten they've um the people have been very um diligently working at retaining their language and bringing back some of these stories so right. it's very much happening in contemporaneous times but when you look back it's the thing that's been going on like for since forever right and we uh i i can't help but draw the kind of the almost a triangle maybe with the like the the witchy wolves and how they both wolves and witches were hunted to almost extinction uh, back mm -hmm. a, a hundred, couple hundred years ago, but now the the Native Americans are also in that category. So it it just I don't know it it kind of draws a parallel for me for some reason. Yeah, the witchy wolves is a story I've been fascinated with for years. Mm -hmm. You know, and and that is something that I've just had to really dig and wait and be patient and meet people um, to get more of it out because what was originally 
known of it was they were they were supposed to be spirit wolves that were left um, long ago by Native Americans to guard their sacred place. And so when teenagers would come out and use it for um, necking parties, then all these witchy wolves would come out into the field. They'd be howling. You could hear them um, howling through the pines. And it was extremely frightening. I'm sure. But there wasn't, <clears throat> wasn't all there was to it. I learned um, by, I was, I was up there um, talking, uh, giving a talk to their historical society. I was able to meet some of the members and they had saved some documents that were, had been stored at the, at the uh, historical society that were written by a local quote unquote historian. And I think sometimes people who are, have a trickster nature will hide truth in tomfoolery and jokes and things. And I think that's kind of how these were because they described something that happened back around uh, the Civil War where one of the young men from the town had gone off to war and came back his with his remains able to be contained in a shoebox. And it said he had died from this condition called scorbutus or scorbutus. It could be pronounced either way. And um, the people in the town didn't really know what that was. They buried him, dug a hole, and, and buried him as, what best they could. And then they were going to do a better job in the spring when things unfroze. They went out there one day in the spring to um, help bury him more properly and to clean the cemetery. They had a little uh, started cemetery out there to clean the cemetery. And when they started digging, they heard this growling, and there was a big she-wolf that was denning in this place where they had um, buried the remains of this person, the, their, their son that had come back. And then there were other growls in the forest as if she were calling forth helpers. And they took their shovels and spades and beat a hasty retreat back to town. Good idea. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> exactly. But what I, I went and started um, researching and the names that were given for these people all existed in the town's history. And one would be listed as an undertaker, and it would turn out, sure enough, he was the undertaker. And oh, wow. It had them playing roles, and I verified that these people with this name did have a son that was killed and imprisoned in, um, I think he may have even been in Andersonville. It was one of the southern uh, prisons. It was Andersonville, yeah. <clears throat> oh, wow. And um, the scorbutus, or scorbutus, scor whichever way you want to pronounce it, was another word for scurvy. They didn't have proper food. They didn't have vitamin C. And so many of them died of scurvy in those camps, just like the old-time sailors before they realized they needed a vitamin C source on their long trips. So all those names were real, and the, the actual uh, thing that happened to the, the young soldier was real. Wow. And, there were, and then they brought these forth and forward, to the present day where there were the necking teenagers and then they heard noises and um, the boys went out of the car and went missing. The girls were uh, managed to get back to town and then the young men never were found, but somebody did find a belt buckle with one of their initials on it. Mm -hmm. out of and again, there are real names used, but I could not find any mm -hmm. confirmation that these young, missing young men were indeed missing. So um, I, I really feel that these were sort of a um, 
where's Waldo sort of form of mind. <laughs> yeah. I bet that's so exciting, though. It's like all of a sudden when you start, you know, looking into some of the history of, of some of these stories, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, my gosh, there there he is. There's the family. There's there's the young man that died. And that part, I bet, is exciting. And then, of it course, is. then you get the young men. It's like, darn it, where <laughs> yeah. are these young men? <laughs> and they may, who knows, they, they may be found one of these days. To me, all of these things are, are really fun and exciting. Um, my fun. first taste of it was when I was working for the newspaper, and I was, we were living in the kettle near the Lauderdale Lakes, and one of the, the uh, weed skimmers that they had that go putt-putts around the lake and gathers up the seaweed that's lying on the surface um, happened to come across something very old and heavy, and it happened to be the seat from a World War II-era uh, fighter jet plane. It was an ejection seat. Oh, wow. Um, and nobody knew where it possibly came from. And um, I did some really real due diligence and found out that there was a, um, a crash, an airplane crash, not too far away, and that the pilot was able to uh, eject himself safely and walk to um, a nearby residence and, and was saved from the whole ordeal. Wow. And the whole of it got reprinted in uh, one of the military magazines that follows um, discoveries of, of war artifacts so that was kind of cool and that kind of set me off and I think that was one thing that gave me the confidence to think maybe I could you know just find enough facts on the Beast of Bray Road or these other creatures or the other legends that perhaps something could be ascertained and there wow. there aren't many um, you know we, we did have the the famed Gable film which was intended as a hoax believed by some and then um, turned around so that it was supposed to be the truth and other people were causing a hoax. So <laughs> oh. you know, it, it make your head spin just the way these uh, you know, incidents do, faster probably even. You know, I was, I was just wondering about that too. What was the, what, what was the spark to, that got you to, to write your first book? I mean, what was the spark that just was like, oh, you know, I I know I, I guess, you know, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, was there something that people kept telling you, you need to, you need to write this down, you need to write a book. Did you just always want to, you know, start writing books or did it just come to you one day and thought, you know, I'm going to start writing these stories down. And it was probably that police file. Oh, well, on, on the werewolves. That was, werewolves. A big, that was a big thing. But, you know, I remember back in uh, fifth grade telling my fifth grade teacher that she asked me what I wanted to be, you know, when I grew up. And and I said, well, I want to write my own books and, and illustrate them. And she looked at me. She kind of clucked and she said, oh, Linda, you can do better than that. Oh, my what? gosh. <laughs> oh, well, yes. I still see her face saying that. And I thought to myself, well. I don't think so. I think, you know, that's what I was supposed to do. And the thing was, I physically, literally could not conceive of writing any sort of book left, le book length um, article until we had word processing. Oh, hmm. I bet. When yeah. <laughs> word, processors, what, word processors came out and they were still being used when I was first hired for the newspaper in 91, 92. 
um, you know, it was just great because you didn't have to use whiteout. You didn't have to get that terrible mm -hmm. grease paper, you know, and uh, you just fix anything you wanted. That was a big game changer. Yeah. That was the the Wang word processor. Yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I started on. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then we had those little tiny, um, com the first were computers, really, they, they were. And um, I'm trying to think what they were called, but they were the old ancient things that we had to work on as, on that newspaper. But yet, it was fine with me because you could change things, interchange things, move them around. Right. That was what I needed. And by the time I, I worked with that newspaper for 10 years, and by the time I was done, you know, things had just progressed. I had my own electric typewriter. That was what we called it then. And um, my own little kind of minute, well, I guess they were actually in a way... The insides were minute, but the outsides were huge compared to today's uh, desktops and things like that. But it was enough. And I had, I actually was more tortured about writing my first book because um, it was true historical crime. And I had published a lot of it in the newspaper in installments. And over the 10 years at that paper, I had written two stories where every single paper for the Sunday edition was sold out. One was the Beast of Bay Road, and the other one was this one called The Poison Widow, which was about a true story about a whitewater Wisconsin woman who um, killed her husband. She, she had a teenage, not, he wasn't a teenage anymore, he was in his 20s, um, student uh, boarding at her house, and they began to have an affair. This is, again, I remind you, in the early 1920s, and they killed between the two of them they murdered her husband with strychnine and oh. would have gotten away with it except then she tried to kill her four lovely children as well wow and it just went, it went like keystone cops from from that point and i finished the story with what i had available and then i thought well what happened to it where'd she ever go what you know and I discovered that she wrangled her way out of prison. She was eventually oh my sent to um, prison where she was made um, the head cook for the women's <laughs> part of it. No lie. And oh my God. <laughs> catering, the catering for the uh, prison warden's um, parties and things. And she got a pardon from the governor. And this is after she had confessed. And it was all pretty well understood. Oh my gosh. Um, and... Then she went to Illinois and had a second family that never knew anything about her until I showed up at the door one, one day with news clippings and pictures of her. And oh, I, wow. like, I basically said, I know what your granny did last century. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And, and I love the pop culture <laughs> reference there. <laughs> I was terrified to go there because I didn't know who these people were. I thought maybe they were a gang of, you know, uh, thugs or who, who knew and it was this lovely lady who was um, the woman's Myrtle's step-granddaughter and her mother. And they said they wouldn't have believed me if I hadn't had the newspaper clippings. <laughs> they had to go, yep, that's her, that's her. Wow. It almost makes me think of uh, the musical Chicago with Roxy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever uh, happened to her when she got old after she murdered her? He had it coming. He had it so, oh, um, Linda, for the fans, because this is an amazing story, what what was the name of it so I can put a link to it in the chat? Sure. It's called The Poison Widow, A True Story of Sin, Strychnine, and Murder. Okay. I'm definitely going to have to read that. That sounds really and good. 
and that was 2003. You couldn't make that stuff up. You know, you just no. couldn't. I'll give you another little tip. This is really my favorite part. When I was talking to that family, they kept looking at each other. And finally, the mother said, you know, she said, first she said, I never liked that woman. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, and then what really got her was she said she was cooking. That was her main deal. She cooked for the family. They owned a drapery sewing um, mini company. And she was the cook, so they could just keep working. And she said she would watch them when they ate their food that she had cooked them. She'd watch them and she'd say, is it good? Is it good? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> if that doesn't show your blood, nothing is. Yeah. That's your, your I, so, so, I mean, since we're on the subject of true crime and everything, you got something else true crime related coming uh, or on the writing roadmap there, Linda? Um, not really, unless there's something I've mentioned about <laughs> since, which is... And excuse me, eminently possible. Okay. Um, did you ask that question for a reason? <laughs> I'm I'm just usually I ask about next projects, but usually oh. later in the show and everything. But I'm, okay. since we're on the subject, why not? Yeah. Well, my next project um, will probably be my agents been kind of suggesting that I do this for some years um, because the first question. Almost everybody asks me is, how did a nice Lutheran Wisconsin girl like you <laughs> end up doing this stuff? Um, oh, yeah. So he'd like me to write kind of my, my business memoir, you know, of oh, how, okay. yeah. how I went through it all and things that happened. Yeah, so I was going to ask about your writing process. So with all the authors that come on, I'm always like, well, how do you get your ideas? How do you flesh them out? How do you go through the ver veracity procedure? Because, um, I mean, you write nonfiction essentially. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot okay. of fact checking and some things make it in and don't. So how do you go about deciding what you're going to write next? That's a good question. Yeah, it is. Generally, I have some idea, you know, and the, the memoir thing, I've been kind of writing in my head, you know, I'm making preliminary uh, forays into um, some historical things I need to find. Um, but it just, it's hard for me to um, to answer that, because truly, most of it comes to me. People write me. They're wonderful. Um, other authors say, oh, I was going through this, and I found this tidbit that seemed more appropriate for you. Maybe you'll like it. Oh, that's and then, nice. And that's usually the start. And then that's when I can just dig in my claws and go, uh, you know, library hopping and Internet surfing and um, interviewing, interviewing people, whatever I need to do for The Poison Widow. I had I, between five and six hundred pages of court documents. Wow! From her trial, yeah, I had to oh track gosh. them down in the state archives <laughs> and sent to uh, Whitewater to the university there, and um, you know, read them with the white gloves. I couldn't take them out of the building or anything. I copied most of them. Oh, wow! And that mm -hmm. was interesting because there were love letters between her and the young lover, and oh my gosh, they, they were um, hmm, I guess. We would use the word lewd today to, to okay. describe most of them. Mm. You know, I don't go any farther than that. Uh, but it was I was embarrassed. I didn't know people talked like that back in the 1920s. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but they were they became an appendage to the back of the um, of the story. And 
then I just kind of, I usually, I, I guess I would call it organically. Whatever seems necessary and interesting, I move toward that, see if I can find somebody to interview, um, any kind of living records, archives. Um, a couple of the witnesses that I interviewed, again, I seem to have these weird personal connections with stories that originally are topics I would never have thought I had one with. But um, just to name two for this one, the, I have to tell you real quickly, the way that she wanted to kill the four children um, while her lover was hiding out in a farm in Minnesota um, was the strychnine again, since she knew how. And so she practiced on rats in her basement with different amounts of strychnine to make sure she would have enough. She went downtown, she went to two different stores, and in one she bought these giant chocolate bonbons with fillings. Mm. And at the other place she bought a bunch of strychnine. And she was by then, um, she had bought another house and was uh, feeding uh, young women who were there at the teaching normal school at the time, they'd come across the street for meals with her all the time. And she needed potatoes, so she sent her four children in her car out in the country to get potatoes. Um, only I take that back. It wasn't her car. It was the neighbor's car because she didn't want her car to get wrecked. Her plan was that they would drive out into the country with her 16-year-old at the wheel and then a 13-year-old in the front seat. And then she had a, a girl who was probably six and a boy who was probably four. And they were going to have this fabulous outing. And the little neighbor girl asked if she could go along. And Myrtle said no, she couldn't go. Um, so they, how do I know this detail? Because the little neighbor girl happened to live next door to me in Alcorn. Wow. <laughs> of all the people in the world. What a coincidence. And That's she great. was fairly elderly by then, you know, but she got her Sunday paper with that story, and she came running across the lawn saying, I was there. I was the little <laughs> That was me. Oh you know, she, she told me the whole thing. And then I won't give you all the details, but she eventually, um, she things went wrong. They went very wrong, very quickly. And soon she found herself talking to the district attorney, whose last name was Godfrey, because he was a, re a relation to my husband. Oh, wow. <laughs> he was the one that broke the story. Oh, wow. So, you know, how often does that stuff happen? But those all those kinds of things always give me a shiver. They make me feel like it was a confirmation that, yes, I was supposed to write this story. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. meant to be. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's so cool. I and can't wait to read it now. Yeah, so I've ordered it, June, so I'll hand you my copy when I'm done with it. <laughs> oh, I'll um, probably get my own. <laughs> <laughs> I did order it. I, I had got my confirmed order shipping date arriving between right here. But so, Linda, let's just talk about Wisconsin weirdness. So my home state and where you currently live, let's be real. We've got crazy stuff that happens there. We've got <laughs> we've got lake monsters. We've got canids. We've got Bigfoot. We've got serial killers. What is up with our home state? Let's we be real We're going to drink here. the water when we visit there. Wendy. I know. <laughs> but it's fresh spring water. That's true. That's true. That's true. You can get straight out of the well. It's going to be good. Yeah, and well, and that's where the, um, the monsters come from, according to American <laughs> friends, are the fresh springs. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I always kind of jokingly say it's probably the long, dark winters mm -hmm. that we have, you know, and, and maybe that's part of it. Um, I do think there's sort of an adventuresome pioneer spirit 
that sounds corny, but mm. so many Wisconsin is said to have been one of the best melting pots for immigrants and people from dif different ethnic cultures of any in the United States. We just had every ethnicity here. And that I think that you then get a great um, boost in, in just the spirit of the place. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there are so many traditions and uh, one is in, enriched by the other. And for instance, I, you, I don't know if you knew this about Hillsborough, but it's one of the most, the, the biggest melting pot of the melting pots. Okay. Um, they had a huge Czech and um, Slovak population, which now has turned into uh, one of the two. There's another. There's another town. Well, Phillips, my my dad's hometown, builds itself also as the the Czech capital, and they kind of duke it out for festival time <laughs> in, in the summer. But so they they got the Czechs, they got the Slovaks. They have they had a very large German population. They had um, Native Americans that. Uh, managed to stay there. They had um, they had an African American um, population that was not there from um, they they weren't like on the the trail you know yeah the underground railroad and stuff were, right right they were part of the underground railroad they were um, freedmen who mm -hmm. were just actually making their way north to Canada um, just to go somewhere else I think before all that. And they happened to find this area that they liked, and they stayed for quite a long time. And there are relatives, um, you know, with their last name. And in fact, I was talking at a um, a Bifa conference a few months ago, and we had a dinner for uh, just a sit down after the thing was over, where the the speakers and their spouses, whoever came along, and one of the spouses was a relative. Of or a descendant of some of the people from that particular colony, wow. and she had Hello. she had she had the same last name, which was just incredible because they had since you know gone on and I think some of them actually made it to Canada. Some stayed you know and just kind of mm -hmm. um, you know fit into the surrounding area. But um, we had all of these. There were Irish. There were English. It was just a, a big stew pot, which. You know, I, I use in my present book is kind of a um, a sign that this is what happened. Just just as the the humans emigrated here, we have a big melting pot of all these wild creatures that used to be here and, and are coming home to it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say with our home state, um, like Milwaukee, how did Wisconsin get get good beer? Because everyone left Germany and the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, <laughs> and went to Milwaukee. Yeah. And then I, when I grew up in the north, um, you know, I grew up with tales of Paul Bunyan, you know, the lumberjack tall tales. So the hodag um, Wendigo. And we had this big fusion between Scandinavian lore and the Native Americans up there. Like we have the Menominee tribe. We have a lot of Chippewa as well. And it mm -hmm. all kind of flowed together uh, as well. So, yeah, the state, you're right, is like this micro microcosm of everything. And then from also a historic standpoint, Wisconsin was one of the, if not the only state for the longest time, that if you were African-American and you made it to Wisconsin, no one could take you back. Right, Others, exactly. Yeah, other states like neighboring Illinois to the south, 
someone could come up from Tennessee and say, hey, it's, you know. They had a return agreement, and yeah. I think they can get money for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Not Wisconsin. If, oh, if, you were, if you made it to Wisconsin, you, no worries. That's exactly right. Yeah, and that's what, what they had there. So I think that engenders vitality, a great amount mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. exuberant vitality. And people seem they, they learn to get along, you know, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah, and so, Linda, on, on the subject of Lumberjack Tall Tales, um, have you ever thought about exploring that topic about, you know, we've got the hodag, which, you know, was the ho hoax from the 1890s, but uh, with some of those Lumberjack Tall Tales, have you thought about developing them a bit more in any upcoming books? I'm just hint, 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 nudge, 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 <laughs> wink, wink, wink. Well, you know, I haven't too much because... Um, I kind of went into, let's see, which book was it for? It might have been for um, American Monsters. Okay, let me grab it. Where I did, <laughs> I did kind of, I think that's the one, where I did kind of go into that, um, and I'm hoping it wasn't uh, Monsters Among Us. I forget which, what's in what book after a while. But um, it became sort of apparent to me, if you look at the history of how Paul Bunyan grew from this um, originally kind of little little story newspaper stories that then expanded and finally they were put together in a volume for school children that was to right. you, you can mm -hmm. see growth where um they're they're sort of like older urban legends you know they, yeah. they're mm -hmm. you can see where they grow out of the culture and out of that lumber um environment where these these men had they were out in the the cold, bare woods with, you know, if you're from up north, there's trees and trees and trees mm -hmm. and trees. Of course, until they can, they, they did cut them all down almost. I mean, a lot of the north was clear cut. Yeah. Sand. And um, then the the lumber uh, industry kind of died out for a while. Now now it's back, but it's changed to more mm -hmm. renewable trees and things. Right. And, and, and I, I will mention that in the meantime, they were selling rock farms. Um, to the immigrants like my great grandparents who bought a rock, you know what a rock farm is. They yeah. essentially the fields are full of rocks, and uh, they and these people were hardy enough and stubborn enough that they stuck and stayed there and, and made that their home. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, and they had to be Scandinavians because I mean, you couldn't <laughs> plow anything in Norway without hitting a rock. Uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, but I think that most people oh. don't realize in the northern part of the state, it's very hilly and it's a swamp. Go figure. You've got the contrasting <laughs> geography. Yeah, the tamarack swamps. Oh, yeah. I remember. I remember walking. There was a lake right near the um, cottage that was part of the farm that my my fam my dad's family came from, outside of Phillips. And my dad would grab us out of bed at four o'clock when it was still pretty close to dark, and we'd have to go walking around the edges of these tamarack bogs and only step where he stepped um, or else you'd go oh, sinking wow. the fishing place and then there were bears out there sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes between us and the house and yeah, oh my I, gosh. I still have bear phobia to this I time. bet yeah. you do <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> so uh, on the subject still of Wisconsin let's um, it. you like to write about haunches they're enjoyable to write about, yes. Yeah, and I was going to say... <laughs> now, what is a haunchy? Yeah. Sorry. Well, well, I don't know where the name came from. Okay. 
I've, I've never found that. Unless it's like, uh, the best I could do was, because it refers to these people very small in stature, who supposedly once worked for circuses, but now they retired. They want a little community village where the houses are their size. It's along um, a road called Mystic Lane hmm. on, the, on the shores of a lake near Milwaukee. And the um, story is that if you go looking and you get too close for their little community, um, first there's a man on a black pickup truck that will come with a rifle and try and shoot you. Wow. And you get away <clears throat> and you're still trying to get to them, then the little people will come with their spades and their um, whatever they have, garden tools, farming tools, and try and get you with those. Oh, my gosh. So that... And I've, all, I've always thought, well, it's kind of like they're sitting on their haunches in the corn waiting for you to come close enough that they can get you. That's the closest I've come. But there are other really similar colonies um, talked about in the weird U.S. books. There's one in New Jersey oh. where there are actual little dwelling places that look like complete homes, but they're too small for the person of average height by far. And there's another one in... Uh, Florida, and the thing that all of these have in common is they actually are located near winter quarters for um, some of the famous circuses. Oh. So there were circuses that were wintered there. Um, I know there one one in Wisconsin um, was near a different lake, Dullivan. Yep. And mm -hmm. if you're probably familiar with that as yep. Wisconsinite, and yeah, there were several circus families that owned this. Um, what's now a, a resort area. And that is, um, no way, I'm losing my entire train of thought. <laughs> where, where, where was I going? I, I think about this resort area and my, my head starts popping because there were also giants found in burial mounds on that exact yeah. same property. Oh my. But um, it was known as the circus town. They still have a giant giraffe and a clown and an elephant, uh, giant fiberglass statues on the town square in Delavan. And there were people that were supposed to have formed a secret colony on that lake shore in a place uh, that, you know, I, I was not told by the person who divulged this to me. But um, she said they were friends of her parents and they would go visit sometimes. And there was a fur-covered lady they just called Auntie who made the best cookies and would serve them. So to me, um, you know, I, I it's like part urban legend, you know, the part about them running out of the cornfields, and um, there was more to that, the man who snooped too much and became a shadow um, hanging by a noose inside a barn, and mm -hmm. of course the black pickup truck, those are very um, urban urban-like legends, mm -hmm. and I and not, maybe not even legends, it's hard to say exactly what they are, but the fact that there were people of small stature, they had to go somewhere when the circus is closed, right, owned property near the circus winter quarters in all these different locations and that part makes total sense wow it seems like i read a an article that they had um found a a colony like that or they had they had found bones and things of of small people um under a university and i forget which one now darn it um but that that it happened all over the place that there were those kind of places found all over the United States and they just didn't get talked about and covered up all the time. And 
I, I don't know that they were um, dwarves or, or you know, people who suffered from dwarfism mm -hmm. uh, as much as just the little people. I, I don't know, uh, you know, maybe something akin to a leprechaun or something. Yeah, and I do think there's a, a distinction between the leprechaun, gnome-like um, little people and what we really should be calling small humans. Right. Mm, true, true, true. Yeah. It's a very it's a very big divide between them. And I think that um, while we have these um, small humans, we call the hobbits, um, mm -hmm. or florensis, I can't remember how that goes mm -hmm. anytime we say it, but Fl florensis um, island, and so they're called Florence, florensis, florensises, I'm close to it. Yeah, yeah. But, but they, the point is that they were alone on the, this island in very small stature, and yet they were complete humans. They, they looked a little different when you got looking at the, uh, the later photographs of the skeletons. It seemed like they had a little smaller heads or something, which would be the opposite of how those things are usually portrayed. Mm -hmm. But um, there are other things called little people. Um, for instance, up by Superior, you have that, I think it's called the Bad Axe um, Nation, um, Reserve Nation. Yep, the tribe, yeah. And, and they have what they call little people, which um, scientists today call concretions. They're often just perfect little spherical um, represent, I don't know, they're not representations because they're supposedly formed by nature. Um, it seems like they're made of concrete, but not the kind of industrial concrete we use. It's just a, a natural mineral formation. And they end up being in these little balls. Sometimes they're lumped together. Um, there was a man who had over a thousand of them and, and put up what he called the Concretion Museum. Oh my. This is in, I believe, Weird Wisconsin. Don't stake me to it because it may be in Strange. I think it's in the Weird Wisconsin book, though. And I have one of them, actually. But their legend is that little spirits live inside each of these oh. and so they call these concre concretions um little people interesting yeah well on the subject of little people in your i know what i saw chapter seven hidden little people you talk about the chilean cave creatures which were golem like um so Sing my precious, my precious. <laughs> <laughs> and it, the questions I have around that one is, it seems the description of these, uh, do we call them cave dwellers? I guess that would be appropriate. Do you find that with these little people in caves, uh, would they be considered the same species? And if so, is there some kind of interconnected cave network that mm. ranges North America? down to South America. I mean, we are connected. Yeah, they're traveling around yeah. safely, so we don't I, see them. Exactly. I do believe that there are more underground and connected cave facilities in the Earth than anybody has realized. And there have been um, announcements just very, very recently of finding some of these um, open areas and cave areas that were never suspected before. Even if you just take the number of of um, openings and caves and passageways under a city of almost any size, um, especially in the northern states where they were used to get around in winter. Um, they were put in, many of them for subways, many of them for um, 
room to run these um, steam heated giant buildings that came up in, in the industrial age. So our cities are honeycombed with them. Uh, we know that they occur in the bottoms of all kinds of freshwater and saltwater um, lakes, seas, oceans, whatever you want to call them. I think there are more of those and there's more of an effect that they have than anybody realizes and that they they may very well harbor pale skin. Anything that lives in a, a place with a lack of light will end up pale skinned. Mm -hmm. Some right. of them blind, you know. And there's even, there's a photo that this man um, who's kind of a professional adventurer um, took that's in the book. I, I wouldn't, you can't swear for sure that that's what this is, but, um, you know, he seemed to have no other explanation for it. Um, Sometimes there are photographic effects if the sun is shining in the right way that you can take a photo of a human figure from a distance and it will look sort of paired in at the neck and, and display some of these same features. But, um, you know, I decided to allow him the benefit of the doubt because his story was so compelling. And um, before he took that photo, he had been, that's when he had gone on a trip, on a trip to Ch uh, Chile with some other spelunking friends and found um, they were followed by these golem type things that they just oh mm. once in a while and was like they were um, being spied out for their food storage or they didn't know what would happen if they stayed in there for a long time. Mm. Yeah, so that makes me wonder because there are primate, primates in Latin America and if it was a cave-dwelling primate I mean, like in Panama, for sure, in Costa Rica, they do have their their monkeys, and it makes me wonder if there is a cave-dwelling species we don't know about yet that would reflect, you know, like a pale skin and hairless. and hmm. <laughs> Like the movie The Descent. Yeah, well, Ooh. those were really big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah, Humanoids those, those there. With very small, sharp uh, teeth. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I don't go into caves these days. <laughs> I, I get claustrophobia. I, yeah, I, me too. I don't know how um, people lived. I know, I actually know a man, he, he uh, it passed, but he had a sister. They were both from France, and uh, the sister lived in an actual cave in France. And the only thing she had to do was the government required her to put in electricity. So she had to put in electricity. But other than that, she was, they were both artists, and she lived in this cave. Oh and made artwork. I never found out what happened to her. Was it kind of part of the catacombs, or was it uh, just a, like a cave in the countryside? Yeah, it was just like oh. a cave in the countryside. They, wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, Linda, since you know we're getting time, I have to talk about your TV show appearances because I watch all the paranormal TV shows. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Same here. Yep. Join the club. <laughs> <laughs> I do love all of them. Like I watch all of them. But uh, so earlier this year um, on In Search of Monsters, mm -hmm. as well as Legend Hunter, they both had episodes about the Beast of Bray Road. So mm -hmm. could you tell us a little bit about your involvement and who do you think got it right about exploring the origins of the Beast of Bray Road? Mm, yes. Well, <coughs> they were all pretty decent productions, you know, and there was also, like, I think I mentioned earlier, the, um, 
a Seth Breedlove Small Town Monsters offering, which was really one of the best. Um, he, he did very well. Um, ones that were problematic, there was one that at the end of it, um, and this actually may have been a different one that was a little bit before. There have been almost, almost five, I think, in total. Um, and this one, at the very end, they did very well to the very end. And then just as sort of an afterthought threw in this idea that five horses were slaughtered by cutting their throats on Bray Road. And to the best of anyone's knowledge, that never happened. Hmm. And I went and checked with the authorities. I was like, what? That happened? Yeah. yeah. And I went, I checked everything, and there was nothing to indicate that. People, I know people on that road who have some horses, they're the only ones. And, you know, that they completely just poo-pooed it. There was another one that um, the people were delight, and in all of these, the people who um, put them on, to, they were delights to work with. They, they really were. And I enjoyed the filming. Um, and they concluded that the Beast of Bray Road, this thing that looked like a canine with pointy ears on top of the head and walked upright on dog legs and was covered, covered with shaggy dark brown fur was actually a bear with mange. Oh. Even though we don't have breeding populations of bears in southeastern Wisconsin. No, and, not at all. <laughs> and if there were mange, why did nobody report that? Why did everybody say it was completely covered with, with uh, shaggy dark brown fur? Yeah, because if it, if it were a, and it would be a black bear, which even if it stands up, wouldn't be it can't tall. run as fast as right. Yeah, right. but it right. wouldn't exactly. be the Beast of Bray Road was had a decent height, and yeah. a black bear is yeah. not. It's like five feet if it stands. I was gonna say five or six feet leg. at the most. Yeah. yeah, right. And their body is proportioned so differently. They, their center of gravity is much lower. Their hind legs are much lower. They they walk and run flat-footed. You know, the plantigrade is the technical term for it. They're just so different. And mm -hmm. to think that we might have um, a bear running hither and yon on Bray Road without leaving um, definite bear spore of different sorts um, just doesn't, uh, you know. And you can't blame the actual host that they have doing it because all of these shows are scripted yeah. and have mm -hmm. to muster with the... Um, Whoever the sponsor is, and it's kind of dictated. So, you know, I don't hold it against them. Um, but the last one that aired, uh, I really thought was one of the best. And I'm thinking that was the legend. I, well, In Search of Monsters had the episode come out in oh. May. Okay, that would be it. In Search of Monsters. Yeah, that was it. I really think that they kind of took the, the prize yeah. for all of them. I, 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 in, just in terms of cinematography and sticking uh, truthfully to what happened. I have my little bone to pick with them too. It's not that much except it's kind of the same for all of them. And actually this goes back to the very first ones with Monster Quest is that they're very reluctant to portray me out in the field doing the work that I do because I'm out there quite a lot. Right. Um, you know, I've had various things happen in the Kettle Moraine while I've been out there. I've worked with... Um, this hay farmer for um, going on five years now, literally out in his hay fields, you know, in my slushy rubber boots, oh. trying to pose where um, we thought a Bigfoot showed up in one of his trail cams to compare the height and the weight, kind of 
I call it channeling my inner Bobo. And I mean, I and doing my own thing in them, you know, I'm really, uh, if I am able to get to a place that's reported to me, I go there. And yet they all showed me as the office lady. Oh. And, <laughs> and I don't understand that. I, I think that's, you know, kind of disingenuous. Um, right. I think there are a lot of women who could be inspired to go out. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not men's work, really. It's just being careful and investigating and educating yourself to what might or might not be there, you know, learning what you can and then going forth and doing it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I mean, and I'm not even, people have the impression that from what they do here, that I must be this big, mighty mountain woman. And (laughs) and I'm five foot one, you know, and when I met one particular well-known investigator, um, he was at a, we were were both at the same conference and I thought, well, I'm just going to go over and say hi to him. I went over and said hi and he looked at me and I said I'm Linda Godfrey and his eyes got big he literally fell out of his chair fell sideways onto the floor (laughs) and he looked up at me and he said I thought you'd be enormous (laughs) (laughs) well thank you (laughs) I've heard those things before I'm I'm almost five foot tall (laughs) yeah so see we have I may be a hobbit but I can still go real quickly too the very first monster quest when they came to my house to film me the idea was and they stated this okay here's what we're going to do we're going to show you vacuuming making a bed and then you're going to get a phone call and then you're going to run off to go and you know look for this beast and i said you can you can film me with a vacuum cleaner um when you can pry my cold dead fingers from around the 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 wand of the vacuum cleaner you know, I, 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 I wouldn't do that. You know, I just want so that's an area where they all can show some improvement. I, mm-hmm. I am surprised. I mean, you were a journalist, so yeah, you I, go out in the field, interview, you lift rocks, you. I, you, I parachuted. I, I actually skydived. Yeah. Oh my. I, I chased um these rias around in a frozen pan it was like 10 below zero um you know i i did all that in fact they they jokingly called me the um adventure reporter when i worked for that newspaper mm-hmm. because i did i tested out um personal water skier water um vehicles on lake <laughs> wow and uh, did the parasailing and and uh you name it i i loved doing all that stuff for these stories but yet um, somehow it has to be the big guy in camo that goes out in the woods. And I have good male friends who are great big guys in camos, and I love them all dearly, and they're great guys to go out with. But um, I guess I'm just asking for the same status, and not yeah. just for me, for other women. Right, exactly. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Um, we're getting close to time, but I do have one more question for you, Linda. And that is... You are so well known for canids, werewolves, and dogmen. If you could research and write any other about any other cryptid or creature, be it avian, big cat, UFOs, more about Bigfoot, lake monsters, what would it be and why would you want to pursue it? Well, um, 
I, I would probably have to say Bigfoot, you know, because the um, reports of Bigfoot in the Kettle Moraine started coming to me way back in 91, 92, as soon as the reports of the upright dog man did. So I knew right away, just from the number of the reports and their nature, that they were seeing something that appeared to be Bigfoot. I couldn't describe it any other way. And then eventually I had to wait 20 years, but I did have my own experiences. And I'm still coming to grips with that because it's not the same as studying other people seeing them at all. It's, very, it's a very, very different proposition. So I'm sort of under the thrall of the Bigfoot, I guess I would have to say right now, because that, when you have that kind of experience, um, it, it started with a giant branch, branch being ripped off a living oak tree right in front of me. You can go to lindagodfrey.com, type in Bigfoot branch in the search box and see the photos of okay. this 35 foot long, eight inch diameter piece of living oak tree that I was, I couldn't have been more than what, 150 feet from it, something like that. And it tells the whole story there, so I won't go into it. But I, I'm pretty much um, hung up on, on Bigfoot. And of course, right now, um, these mystery, black mystery panthers, as they're called, I've had two different people with Native American associations tell me that these, not the tan cougars, but the black ones, are spirit creatures. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to pursue that as well. Yeah, we didn't get yeah. into that. And for our listeners, when you buy, I know what I saw. <coughs> you can go to Chapter 10, Black Mystery Cats and Inconvenient Mountain Lions to read more about that. Uh, it would be classified, it's Water Panthers, I believe, is the the section of that chapter that covers right. it. That's, that's what they were called, or something like that. Mm -hmm. in, in, oh, Linda, in, we're definitely going to have to have you on again. You're just so fascinating. I, I just love, I love hearing your stories. <laughs> Guys, ask great questions, no, and that's part of it. It really, really is. I enjoyed you. my time here with you. Okay, um, so we as always, yes, uh, as yes. always, and you know we're huge fans. So really, we'll bump <laughs> anyone for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I make the website. I'll bump anyone for you. <laughs> uh, and uh, so we've got about you know, a minute and a half left. So I do want to say Linda S. Godfrey, her new book, I Know What I Saw, Modern Day Encounters with Monsters and New Urban Legend and Ancient Lore. It comes out on July 16th. You can pre-order uh, on Amazon, get it in paperback as well as Amazon. It is published by Tarcher Peregrine of Penguin Random House Imprint. Um, amazing book. We got a pre-read. As you can tell, we were listing off the chapters and everything. It's, it's yep. like one of my favorite books. It's right up there with my absolute favorite is Real Wolfman. Um, and tune in next week. We will have on, uh, Wendy, correct me if I'm wrong, Jason Kupsik. Is that how you pronounce his name? That's how I've been pronouncing it. If it's wrong, it's, so he'll, he can correct wrong. me next week. Yeah. <laughs> and it, he's a very influential paranormal investigator in the Kansas City area, and I believe he's behind a um, Paracon that you'll be yes, having. Yes, he's mm -hmm. behind the Kansas City Paracon um, August 9th and August 10th. Yeah, which sounds like Masonic it's going to be Lodge. really, really cool. Yes, really, definitely. Really nice Paracon. And, and I'll be there, too, so come down and see us if you're around. Yay! Yay. <laughs> and, Linda, again, your Facebook yes. group, though it's private, is... Unknown Creatures Spot. Oh. 
Right, unknown creature spot, and you can just request to be in it. We just ask a simple question to make sure you're not a spam bot. Yeah, you know, robot. Then you can be uh, ushered in. So uh, just go to unknown creature spot. We have a real great group. Uh, lots of interesting people in there. And Wonderful. Your website is lindagodfrey.com, and as well, you have Linda S. Godfrey. If you search Facebook, you can find her Linda Godfrey author page to see what she's working on currently as well. Right, and also please, if you would, go to uh, Facebook, Return to Wildcat Mountain, or on YouTube, Return to Wildcat Mountain. And if you like it, give us a like. That would be great. Or subscribe even better. Absolutely. You now, got was it. there a was there an upcoming date for when the doc the documentary will uh, be out? Um, we're we're looking at um, mid September right now. Okay. So we're not giving a hard and fast date, but we're probably we're we're coming into the ending of the uh, post production. And lots, yeah, lot lots of wild stuff. And my son is a very talented cinematographer. He went to the school graduated from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago okay. in, in film. So he's, I'm, I'm really proud of the job that he's doing with it. And uh, that, how, how that whole thing came about um, is probably another show, but. <laughs> <laughs> we can have you back for that in September. Definitely, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. That would be great. That's a and, good idea. And also, the, the gentleman who started writing me about it and actually collected all of these from these people um, just on his own say so um, I think he would be fascinating to have okay maybe we can oh, do, sure. do bring you all on yeah mm -hmm. have you all on to talk about the movie and we can Great take show. it frame by frame that'd be perfect mm -hmm. frame by frame because <laughs> <laughs> you know I, know. I you know I want to go into yeah. detail like that I'm really nerdy <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Amazing, Jacob. That's why we love you. <laughs> uh, so, Wendy, June, closing words. Um, well, it's been great. Thank you yeah. so much for being with us tonight, Linda. Thank you. That's been just so fascinating. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed hearing everything. It's just been wonderful. And thanks to all your listeners from me very much. I, I appreciate any time, anybody who takes the time to listen to two words of me. I'm, I'm <laughs> That's amazing. Well, and if you buy the books, Go and leave a review, for goodness sakes, or at least yes. give it give it stars or whatever. And, and just it, just short, honest, whatever you got, um, please be nice and polite. Um, <laughs> although there's always going to be trolls. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazon Bye. does a great job of filtering out the trolls now. That's nice. Yeah. Very good. Um, All righty then. Yeah, we would like to thank our sponsor, Carly, uh, from Crimson Cloak Publishing and the Crimson thank Cloak you, Radio Carly. Network. Thank you for letting us invade your space. Yes. And as we close out, we have the song uh, Wolves at the Door. It's by Bad Seed Rising. Yes. So nice. Thank All you. right, everybody have a great week. Yes. Bye. Thank you for listening and take care. <laughs> Oh, my God.